Good morning, LifeBridge. I'm glad that you are here with us again online. And my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at LifeBridge. And I'm just glad that you're here with us. This is our Discovery Hour time. Usually we would meet in classes for all ages and stages. And our goal is to bridge the gap between learning and leading. And, and I'm sorry, learning and living. Uh, and I guess leading would go in there as well. But for now, during this uh, stay-at-home orders, I am teaching at this time. And so I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time with us, let me encourage you to fill out the communication card in the comments down below there. We'd love to get to know who you are. If you have a prayer request, we want to pray for you. If you need help to take next spiritual steps, we would love to help you with that as well. So just fill out that communication card in the comments and we'll help you out with that. We'll get back in touch with you. Also, uh, just right now is a good time to just hit that share button. We want to share the good news that God is teaching us through his word. So if you just right now just hit that share button, that would be awesome. And I, I just, I don't know, if it, if you're like me, this is beginning to wear on you, maybe starting to get on each other's nerves there at your home, and I just want to encourage you and remind you with this truth, God is good all the time. And so in the comments, go ahead and respond to the rest of that saying, God is good all the time, go ahead and put in the comments, all the time, God is good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And that's true even in this pandemic. And our God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that is good news. He is a great and gracious and loving God. And circumstances don't change that. Your economic standing doesn't change that. Your health conditions don't change that. We have a God who is consistently good, glorious, and gracious. And so I want to remind you of that. Now, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. For the last five weeks, we've been studying Isaiah 53, the fourth and final servant song in the book of Isaiah. Now, each of these servant songs have a praise response that follows the song. And that's true here in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the greatest of the four servant songs, it has this wonderful response that actually takes up two chapters, chapters 54 and chapters 55. And so what these two chapters do is they answer this question. How should we respond to the good news of salvation? Isaiah 53 is filled with the good news of salvation through the Lamb of God, our sacrificial substitute. How should we respond to that? And the answer is this. Shout for joy in chapter 54 and share the news in chapter 55. Shout for joy, share the news. In fact, The first verse of each of these chapters tells us what the response should be. So in your Bibles, look with me at Isaiah 54. Look at the first verse and notice the first command. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting 
and cry aloud. That's just really clear. Shout for joy. That should be our response. Now go to chapter 55 and look at the first verse there. And immediately we see the response that we should have. Look at chapter 55, verse 1. Ho, listen up, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And so you see, there's there's an invitation in chapter 55, and there's a celebration in chapter 54. Now this morning, we're going to focus on chapter 54 and the celebration of joy. And we're going to look at why we should be a joyful, joyful people if we have embraced the gospel. Now, pastor and author Ray Ortland uh, says, Isaiah 54.1, shout for joy, is probably one of the most disobeyed command, commands in all the Bible. And I think he's right. Isaiah looks at the sin-bearing servant of the Lord, and he has one thing to say to us. Shout for joy. Break forth with a cry out with great rejoicing. In other words, let joyful song explode out of you. Ortland goes on and says, Our exaggerated sense of decorum is the last bastion of pride holding out against the gospel. Some churches make it a virtue, but God doesn't. In his exuberance, he's creating a new world of boisterous happiness through Christ. We must rejoice with him, or we risk making our hearts impervious to salvation, because that holy but raucous joy is salvation. Enthusiasm offends religious people because breaking forth into singing and crying out loud entails loss of control. It brings us down to the level of children, even the vulgar who never learn their manners. Wow, Ortland goes on to say that if grace is dancing, we ought to be dancing too. And I would say if grace is shouting with joy, we should be shouting too. In fact, John Calvin placed singing with joy at the center of his theology of the church. One man summarized Calvin's thoughts on this this way. The church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. But then, too, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. So, I don't know what your situation is right now. Some people are struggling with health. Some people are struggling financially, uh, relationally, the isolation. Uh, There's a lot of things going on in our hearts and minds. But if we have received the gospel, we still have great joy. We should still be crying out, singing out with great joy. Now, Ortland says this he says every church should put a notice on its front door and i like this listen all face saving moralists take warning within these doors your chilly pride is in danger of melting into exuberant joy enter at your own risk but all sinners depressed with guilt are welcome because we have good news of great joy to share And so uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer 
and ask him to uh, just prepare our hearts to, to dive in to this chapter. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and uh, we are just a, a weak people. Uh, we are a prideful people. We, we confess that. We think we have control and we think that we can plan the future. And yet, Lord, during something like what we're going through right now with this plague, we know that you are the one who is in control. And so I pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to hear from you, directly from you, from your word, from your spirit. And Lord, there would well up in us the desire to receive this good news for ourselves. And those who have received it would rejoice with great joy. We pray this in the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, here's the big idea. Uh, and the big question that Isaiah 54 answers, and it's this. Why should we shout for joy? Why should we shout for joy? And let me give you a one-sentence answer, and it's simply this. The servant's sacrificial substitution has resulted in radical reversals of great joy. Radical reversals of great joy. Now, if you download the notes, and you can do that right there in the comments, the link is there. If you've downloaded the notes, then you know I, I have a chart in those notes that kind of go through these three reversals. And I'm not going to take the time to work all the way through that chart right now, but it has three radical reversals of great joy. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see an unfruitful woman who is barren but becomes so fruitful, she fills the world with her children. The second is in verses 4 through 10, the unfaithful wife. And the guilt of her spiritual infidelity is so great and so overwhelming, but God reverses that and enables her to once more enjoy spiritual intimacy. And then in verses 11 through 17, the unstable city, a city in ruin that is filled with fear and instability and insecurity. And then the Lord reverses that by his grace. Now, one thing I want to say before we dive into this is that we're going to be talking about infertility. And and I know that is something that many struggle with. I know my wife and I, we, we struggled for seven years before God blessed us with our daughter. And some people, that never happens. But I want you to say, I want you to know up front, it would break my heart to think if I said anything or, or taught this in a way that would you would misunderstand that personal struggle. This isn't about our, this isn't a lesson on physical or personal infertility. It is a lesson on spiritual infertility and how sin brings barrenness, brings shame, brings guilt, and brings fear into our lives. So with that, uh, that clearly in our minds, let's look at these three powerful word pictures. Now, here's the first one, and it's simply this. We should shout for joy because, by God's grace, the unfruitful woman fills the earth with children. The unfruitful woman fills the earth with children. Let's read verses 1 through 3. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Whatever version you have, follow along. Shout for joy, O barren one. 
you who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed in labor is what that means. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. It's about living as nomads in tents. And he's saying, look, get those tents spread out. For you will spread abroad to the left and the right. And your descendants, your seed, literally seed, will possess nations and will resettle desolate cities. Now, the first thing I want you to see in those three verses is simply this. The shame due to sin's unfruitfulness. The shame due to the barrenness of sinfulness. No spiritual fruit due to a lack of God's blessing. You see, in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, God promised the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, promised Israel that if they would live faithfully and obediently to Him, He would bless them with physical birth and physical seed. And in fact, in in one passage, he even promises that their animals won't ever have a miscarriage. It was a spiritual blessing under the old covenant. Now, how barren had Israel become due to their rebellion? Well, look at verse 1. He says four things. He says, one, O barren one, they can't have spiritual children. Who have borne no children. They have never had spiritual children. They have not travailed. They have not even entered into labor or even had a miscarriage. And the reason is they are now desolate. And what's that mean? They have no chance of spiritual children. Why? Because they're rebelling against their divine husband that would bless them with that kind of fruitfulness. Now, how shameful was their rebellion. Well, drop down to verse 4, and notice what it says. There's four words for shame in here. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. So you got these piling up of these four words, shame, humiliation, disgrace, reproach. And when you trace those words in in the book of Isaiah, but also the whole Bible, but particularly Isaiah, they're associated with idolatry. The point is the shame and the barrenness is not so much a physical thing that they're enduring. It is the spiritual barrenness due to their unfaithfulness to the Lord, due to their their refusing to worship the one true God who delivered them out of Egypt. Now, the picture of these verses is the nation of Israel being laid waste and their land becoming empty and barren and desolate. Why? Because in their rebellion, the Lord said, look, I'm going to discipline you and take you into exile and send you into captivity. Isaiah is predicting this over 100 years before it happens. The Babylonians are going to come and take them away. And the land is going to be barren and fruitless. Now, the Apostle Paul 
takes these very same verses and uses them in Galatians 4, 21 through 31 to make the point that it's only by God's grace and the power of the gospel that we can become God's children. The only way we can be spiritually fruitful for God, the only way we can bear fruit in evangelism and discipleship and missions is if God's grace by faith in God. But if we rebel against God, our sin is going to bring spiritual barrenness, fruitlessness into our lives. You see, the promised land's going to be barren and Israel will be childless. Why? Because everybody's going to be taken into captivity into Babylon and the land is going to be desolate. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story for Israel, and it doesn't have to be the end of the story for you. Why not? Because by God's grace, there's going to be a radical reversal through the servant of the Lord. In Isaiah 53.10, we saw that the servant will die and bearing our sins, and yet he will rise and see his spiritual seed. Well, guess what? This is the spiritual seed that God's going to produce right here. In the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, the spiritual barren, can become radically and spiritually fruitful. And that's good news. So here's the radical reversal. What these three verses tell us is this that you can have so many spiritual sons that you will have to stretch, strengthen, spread, and settle your tents to fill all the earth. That is an amazing promise. You know, maybe you are struggling physically to have children, or maybe those struggles aren't going the direction you want. But here is good news, and the good news is this. All of us, All of us, married, single, childless, many children, one child, adopted. It doesn't matter. It's not about that. Any of us can be spiritually fruitful if we will allow the Lord to bring his blessings into our lives through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, this all became a reality at the first coming of Christ. And with the coming of Jesus and his death, his resurrection his exaltation, his gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's the good news. We can be born again as God's children. But not only that, we can be spiritually fruitful. We can lead others to Christ and we can bear spiritual children. And this is a tremendous spiritual blessing. But unfortunately, the nation of Israel rejected their Savior, their substitute, They rejected the Lamb of God at their first coming. And so they, as a nation to this day, remain spiritually barren and they suffer the spiritual shame of having rejected their very own Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. But here's the good news for Israel. One day soon, the Lord is going to come back. And when he comes back, He's going to come at a critical time where the nation of Israel is surrounded by its enemies and she will look up and she will see the one whom they have pierced and they will repent of their sins and the Lord will call them out of their barrenness into spiritual fruitfulness and they'll experience that 
for a thousand years under Christ's reign in the millennial kingdom. But I want to make sure you understand, no one, neither Jew or Gentile, has to wait until the second coming to get in on the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. You don't have to wait. Right now, today, you can turn from the barrenness and the fruitlessness of your sin, and you can embrace the servant as your sacrificial substitute, and his spirit will make you a child of God, and all the blessings that are in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1-3, can be yours today. I can still remember the day in August of 1979 when as a 17-year-old teenager, I settled the question of my salvation. And that Sunday afternoon after embracing Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I just remember such joy and peace that filled my heart. That can be yours. Now, I didn't just immediately quit sinning. I'm not sinless, but I do sin less. And it's been a struggle to follow the Lord. It hasn't always been easy. It never will be easy. But the joy and the fruitfulness and the ability to know that I am right with Him is a wonderful blessing. And I want you to enjoy that as well. So that's the first word picture. It's a powerful one. An unfruitful woman whose shame is turned into shouts of joy and spiritual fruitfulness. So let's look at the second word picture. And here is what it is. The unfaithful wife, an unfaithful wife receives loyal love from her husband forever. Think about that radical reversal. An unfaithful wife receives loyal love from her husband forever. Now let's read this. It's in verses 4 through 10. Notice verse 4. We've read that, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. But look at verse 5. Why will the shame go away? And why will the guilt be dealt with? For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like the wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I forsook you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting, eternal loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. Now, in that same way, so I have sworn that you will, I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. What powerful promises. Now, what I want you to capture in this word picture is this, the guilt due to sin's infidelity. We have no spiritual intimacy 
due to a lack of covenant loyalty to the Lord. He, he's saying Isaiah and the Lord through Isaiah is saying to the nation of Israel, you have guilt upon you for you have been unfaithful to me as your spiritual husband. And therefore, we don't have intimacy anymore. You are now separated. He's going to send them into exile. You see, the nation of Israel is pictured here like an unfaithful wife who has practiced adultery. Now listen, throughout her entire married life, from the first day of the marriage through the entire marriage. Now just stop and let the greatness of sin sink in. The nation of Israel is like a wife who gets married, a young bride, and on the honeymoon, on the wedding night, commits adultery and doesn't stop, keeps on committing and doesn't repent and and gets a hard heart and refuses to stop sinning. And that's exactly a picture of what happened to the nation of Israel. God, in a sense, married them spiritually through the Mosaic Covenant at the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses went up to get the, 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 the arrangements, the vows that they were to take. And before God could even finish writing them on the two tablets, Israel was committing spiritual adultery with false gods and false idols. And you know what? They never stopped. They never stopped cheating on the Lord. And so there came a time where the Lord, out of his love, said, Look, I've got to discipline you. Love won't let you profess to be my wife and remain in immorality. And so he sends them into exile. He turns his face from them and he sends them into exile. This is a picture of Israel's spiritual infidelity to the Lord. Now, how did the Lord respond to this? Well, he responded in a loving way by not overlooking the sin, by not turning away, turning a blind eye. That wouldn't be loving to them. That wouldn't be good for them. And it wouldn't be consistent with his holiness. Listen, if you're a believer and you profess to know this holy and loving God, and yet you persist in living in unrepentant sin, secret or known. Understand that if you are in covenant relationship with the Lord, He will not let you persist in that. He loves you too much. So, good news. Once again, this isn't the end of the story. Uh, God isn't going to just divorce and turn away from His unfaithful and immoral wife, why not? Because God's grace, by God's grace, there's going to be a radical reversal through the servant of the Lord. So here's the radical reversal that we see in these verses, and it's this. There is so much forgiveness and loving kindness that you will enjoy eternal peace and intimacy with the Lord. He has that much forgiveness. He has that much loving kindness. Now, let's just stop here and and pause and think for a moment. How could such unfaithfulness ever be forgiven? And humanly speaking, we couldn't do it. We just couldn't do it. But listen, what husband would ever welcome back such a cheater? 
How could the Lord ever forgive Israel's disloyalty, her spiritual adultery, her hard heart that refused to repent of her ongoing idolatry? And the answer is in who the husband is. The answer is in the character of God. Did you see in verses 5 through 6, who is Israel's husband? And I don't have the time to take you through this, but there's a reason why in verses 5 through 6, the Lord just heaps up all these names. In fact, I see seven names here of Israel's husband. He starts out by saying, I'm your maker. I'm the creator of all things. Then he says, I'm called the Lord of armies. I'm the protector who leads armies of angels to protect those I love. Three, your redeemer. I am your redeemer. And that refers to the kinsman redeemer. And if you come back at 1045 today, you're going to learn more about that from the book of Ruth. But the idea is I'm a provider who has the resources to meet your every need. I'm the holy one of Israel. I'm the lover who is large and in charge. I'm holy. And yet I love Israel. I care And I know what you're going through. Number five, the God of all the earth. I'm the ruler who reigns over everyone and everything, everywhere. And then number six, the Lord, meaning the I am God. I am the promise keeper and ever present redeemer. What an amazing God is being revealed to us. And then finally, he says, I'm your God. This is me. This glorious, good, and gracious God is your husband. Now that is an amazing thing. And how will such a God respond to the sins of his unfaithful people? And the answer is with covenant loyalty. Look at verses 8 and 10. In verses 8 and 10, we see this beautiful word. In verse 8, everlasting loving kindness. And in verse 10, it says, My loving kindness will not be removed from you. Now, this is the beautiful Hebrew word, kesed. It's the word of covenant love, loyal love, loving kindness. And the point is this. When we enter into a covenant-saving relationship with this kind of God, the one true God, His loyal love, never falters. He can't love us anymore. He can't love us any less. It doesn't depend on how we're living. It's rooted in his glorious character. And so how does such loyal love respond to unfaithful people? Well, in verses 7 and 8, loyal love like that will discipline the sin of his people. But he does it not to send them into condemnation. He does it so that they would repent, so that they would be reconciled, and they would be righteous once again, right relationship with him. In verses 7, 8, and 10, such a God will show amazing grace, undeserved favor, and great compassion. In this passage, three times compassion is mentioned. And it's the compassion that a mother has for its child. 
that undying love. And God says, I have that kind of love for you, my people. I love you with that kind of compassion. And then in verses 9 and 10, it says that God will provide a covenant of peace. And I believe that covenant is the new covenant. It's the new covenant of peace. Because in the servant songs, two different times, the servant says, God says to the servant, you will be my covenant for my people. It's the covenant of his blood. It's that substitutionary sacrifice, the shed blood in the place of sinners that creates the new covenant, a covenant that is unchanging and gives us a heart with which we can obey God. Now, right there in verses 9 and 10, he mentions the covenant with Noah. And the reason he does that is because in Genesis 9, God cuts a covenant with all of creation through Noah to promise to never again judge all of creation for their continued sinfulness by a flood. And what God is saying to us in these verses is, he says, remember how that covenant was so unconditional and showed such great compassion? Well, listen, unfaithful Israel. I will make a new covenant with you, and I will not break my promises to you. I will not replace you with another nation or another people. I will produce in you and I prom- a, a new heart, and I promise that I will not pour out my wrath of eternal judgment on you. But you know what? Unfortunately, Israel rejected this wonderful God as their husband. When Jesus came as their Messiah, their their perfect substitute, they rejected him. They rejected him. But that's not the end of the story. And in and, and reality, here's the thing. In the reality, they still have the guilt of that sin upon them as a nation. They still live with the guilt of rejecting their Messiah. But one day, One day soon, Christ is going to return. And when he returns, the nation is going to look up and see the one whom they have pierced. And they are going to repent and they're going to receive him as their substitutionary offering for their sin, their guilt offering. And their guilt will be wiped away and they will be restored to intimacy with Jesus, their Messiah. But again, I want to tell you, No one, no one, Jew or Gentile, has to wait another moment. You can get in on this radical reversal. You can get in on it today. All you have to do is turn from your spiritual idolatry in order to embrace Jesus as your substitute. And he will cover your sins. He will take away your guilt. He's already bore it away on the cross, but you have to receive him. And you can do that today. So the first word picture is an unfruitful, barren woman who is radically reversed into a joyful mother with tons of children, spiritual children. The second word picture is an unfaithful wife whose guilt is forgiven and she's brought back home to the joy of spiritual 
intimacy with her faithful, loyal husband. Now let's look at the third word picture, and it's this. It's the unstable city becomes a secure, righteous community. An unstable city becomes a secure, righteous community. Let's look at verses, let's just read verses 11 through 12 to see the word picture. Verse 11, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antinomy, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. Now, what are we supposed to see here? First of all, we need to see the fear that sin, sin's instability brings into our lives. Sin brings an unstableness and a great fear into our lives. Not only shame, not only guilt, but also fear. There's no spiritual community with God and His people due to our lack of righteous relationships. Now, the word picture here is interesting. We've moved from a woman to a city. We've moved from a bride to a building. The nation of Israel is now pictured as a ruined and defeated city. It's a picture of the city of Zion, the city of David, the capital city of God's people, Jerusalem. Zion, that city where heaven meets earth, where God's people gather in God's presence to worship Him. And yet that city, in verse 11, is in ruin. Let's look at the condition of God's city. What was the condition of the community of God's people according to verse 11? Verse 11 begins with three words. And here's the three words. They're battered, they're scattered, and they're shackled. They're battered. They have been afflicted and humbled by a nation greater and more powerful than them. It's going to happen 100 years in the future. Isaiah talks about it as though it already has. And he says, look, you're going to be battered and beaten down by a force and a power that you cannot overcome. Secondly, you're going to be scattered. You're going to be scattered. In other words, you're going to be blown away and scattered to the winds by your enemies. You're going to be storm-tossed. And then finally, you're going to be shackled. And that's the idea of not being comforted. When you trace this idea of being comforted, when you're not comforted, it means you're not redeemed. You're enslaved. You're enslaved and you don't have the ability to freely worship God. Now, this is really a picture of all of us in our sin. We're battered, beaten down by the power of sin that we can't overcome. We're shattered. We're scattered, that is. We're scattered. We're, we're blown away. We're, we're not able to do the things that God has called us to do. And then we're shackled. We're in bondage to sin. Well, that's not the end of the story for Israel. Why not? Because by God's grace, there's going to be a radical reversal through the servant of the Lord. And so here's the radical reversal. There's going to be so much beauty, so much stability, and so much purity that you will enjoy a community of peaceful security for all eternity. 
That is a radical reversal. Battered, scattered, shackled. But now there's going to be beauty. There's going to be, there's going to be beauty, stability, and purity. Now, there's only one way this is going to happen. The only one way that any of these reversals can happen, and it's God himself must be the builder of this city. Look at verse 11, where right in the middle of the verse it says, Behold, and we know from our study of Isaiah that behold there tells us, pay attention because God is going to do something only he can do. He's going to intervene with miraculous power. In other words, God is going to be the builder and the architect of the new Jerusalem. Now, what kind of community is God going to build for his people? Now, we don't have time to go into the detail of all these images, but look at verses 11 through 17, and you'll see the kind of community. It's going to be a community of great glory. That's why it talks about precious stones. It's going to be a community of great stability. There's going to be firm foundations. It's going to be a community of great security. Why? Because it has high towers and battlements for protection. It's going to be a community of great spirituality. Let's read verses 13 and 14. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons, or literally the shalom, the peace of your sons, will be great. Why? Look at verse 14. In righteousness, you will be established. In righteousness, you will be established. Well, we know from Isaiah 53 whose righteousness that is. It's not ours. It's not Israel's. It's the righteousness of the sinless Lamb of God. And then finally, the passage ends that this community will have great safety because the sovereignty of God himself will protect it. Look at verses 16 and 17. Behold, I myself have created... Well, let's look at verse 15. I'm sorry, start in verse 15. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. I'm your protector. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Behold, there's that idea. He's going to intervene It's only God who can do this. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fires of the coals and brings out a weapon for its work. And I have created the destroyer to ruin. In other words, he says, look, I'm sovereign over your enemies. I'm sovereign over their weapons. Look at verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. Wow, this is the safety. There's no need for fear anymore. Why? Because there's been a radical reversal of by God's grace through his servant, the Lamb of God. Now, you've heard this now three times. Unfortunately, Israel rejected, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus at his first coming. And therefore, their city and their temple to this very day, still remains in ruins and is divided and is factioned off of different religions and different nations and different rulers. In fact, as a nation, this very moment still, 
they are surrounded on every side by enemies who have sworn to destroy them. And so they live in fear. As long as they refuse to receive Jesus as their sovereign Savior and Protector. But one day soon, at the second coming, third time I've said this, at the second coming, at the moment when they need Him the most, Jesus is going to return with the saints. Israel as a nation is going to look up and see the one they have pierced. They will repent and they will receive Him as their sovereign Savior. And He will deliver them from the Antichrist and his armies that will have them surrounded. And the new Jerusalem will be built and they will enjoy the community with God filled with glory, safety, security, and stability. Because God is building them a heavenly Jerusalem, Israel needs to be like their forefather Abraham And they need to be looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's Hebrews 1.10 or 11.10. And like the remnant of Israel listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, the nation of Israel needs to desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God will not be ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's Hebrews 11.16. But listen, that's in the future. But listen, listen, listen. No one, no one, neither Jew or Gentile, has to wait for the second coming to, in order to enter into this community, this righteous community of God's true believers. This new community can be restored to you right now through a right relationship with Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb of God and the coming king. Right now, today, no matter what ethnicity you are, no matter what social status you are, no matter what economic standing, no matter what your health is, no matter what your job situation is, right now, today, you can enter into this new community. You can be a member of this heavenly Jerusalem that is being built by God. Notice Hebrews thirteen fourteen. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. This new Jerusalem. Now I want you to realize the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 54 is going to be found in Revelation 21. Once you turn there in your Bibles to Revelation 21. And I want you to see this. This new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven is not just for Israel. And it's not just for the church. It's for Israel and for the church. They will be one people of God. Distinct They won't lose their identity as Israel. They won't lose their identity as the church. But they will become the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. You say, Chris, where do you get that? How do you see that? Well, look right there in Revelation 21. And let's begin in verse 9. And I just want to read this to you. Because this is the wonderful fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. 2,000 years plus. Here's what happens. Verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, 
Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Remember the bride in the building, the city and the woman? And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And the names were written on them, and which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Now see, here's the new Jerusalem. Hey, it is Israel. We would expect that. The tribes of the twelve sons. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 54. And there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. But no, look at verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so the foundation is the church, the gates are Israel. And yet it's one people of God, one bride of Christ, one new Jerusalem. Wow. I wish we had time we could go through. It ends with this. Verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. See, it's all about Isaiah 53 and the sacrificial Lamb of God. So, Israel church, distinct yet one. But you know what the biggest biggest thing we need to focus on? The biggest thing we need to focus on is the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus of Nazareth. Sinless, crucified, buried, risen, exalted, and coming again. Why should we shout with joy? Because this sacrificial substitute has resulted in these radical reversals. You don't have to, you don't have to endure the shame of sin's barrenness. You can be fruitful in the Lord. You don't have to suffer the guilt of sin's unfaithfulness. You can be forgiven and enjoy intimacy with the Lord. You don't have to worry about the fear of sin's instability, you can be reversed and enter into the spiritual community based on His righteousness, not your own. So I want to end with this. The last part of verse 17 says this. Listen, you too can shout with joy and dance with grace. And here's why. Listen to the last part of verse 17. This all of chapter 54, these radical reversals, this is the heritage, the inheritance of the servants of the Lord and their vindication, or that can be translated, their righteousness is from me, declares the Lord. You see, these things don't depend on you. They depend on the Lord. So turn from your own willfulness, your own self-dependency, your own 
reliance on your good works or religiosity or intellectualism or, or athletic ability. I don't know what it is that is your idol, but we all have idols. Turn from those things and come to the Lord and his sacrificial lamb and he will give you. All you give him is your sins, all he wants, and, and, and all he'll give to you is his righteousness. For he who knew no sin became, for he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so I invite you, first of all, shout for joy this morning. Receive him as your savior. You can shout for joy. You can experience that peace and joy that I began experiencing when I was 17 and, and it, it doesn't end. But also dance with grace. Don't stop repenting if you know him. Don't stop relying on his grace. Continue to dance with his grace. And you will enjoy a shame-free, guilt-free, and fear-free life. If you make that decision or you make any decision and need help with that, uh, just put that information in the comments. Fill out the contact card. We would love, love to help you better understand how these truths can become a reality in your own life and heart. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for the gift of your Son, and Lord, what an awesome God you are. You're a protector, a defender. You're a lover. You are a the one holy God who also cares about our needs. And so, Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, may they receive you today. And, and just put a hand up there. Use the hand, raise the hand thing on Facebook. I don't care what it is because it's what happens in the heart. And Lord, those of us that know you, let us repent again this morning that we will rely on your grace and your grace alone to have spiritual fruit, to maintain a clear conscience, a guilt-free conscience, and to maintain the community where we do not need to fear. We can be transparent. We can be authentic. Because ultimately, Lord, it's not about us. It's all about you. We praise you and we pray for the peace of Israel. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we'll see you next week. Same time, same place. God bless you.